Welcome to Elevating La Cultura podcast, a space where I talk with Latinas who are passionate about what they do and are willing to share their passion with others to change the narrative, especially for the next generation. Each season is centered around different topics, but all with a Latina perspective. This is season six and is going to be featuring Latinas in the food space. I hope this season is inspiring and perhaps even nostalgic as we hear stories we can relate to. I'm so excited to share these stories and talk about food. So vamonos and let's get into it. Hola, my first guest for this season brought an amazing conversation about food. Mary Beth from Heart of Celebration is an educator and private chef and overall speaks with such passion and heart about foods, especially cultural foods. So please enjoy our conversation. Hello, hello. Today I'm excited for my guest, Mary Beth. She is a private chef under Heart of Celebration. I'm super excited because I've been following for a long time. I probably started following a lot of the people on this season during 2020. And so I'm excited to have conversations and like get to know the heart of why they started doing what they're doing. But before we get into it, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Yes. Hello. My name is Mary Beth Salguero Johnson. Um, I hyphenate them nowadays because Mary Beth Johnson sounds like I'm a blonde yoga teacher. <laughs> That's what comes up if you like Google search my name. Um, but no, I am first generation Guatemalan American. Both my parents are Tepines. Um, and I am a private chef and a food educator. Um, so I work with youth on the west side of Chicago teaching them um, how to cook, teaching them kind of a holistic approach um, from where our ingredients from, we do some gardening and then we, um, yeah, we try to cook foods that are specific to their individual um, tastes and culturas. That is really exciting. I am especially interested in the part that you said you work with kids because having two kids of my own that have like their own specific palates, it's been interesting for me trying to cook with them. And I've actually been like on the search of trying to get them into a cooking class so that they can expand their, their palate. And so it's not just like chicken fingers and hot dogs and the typical like safe or fast foods that we have around. Um, but I'm curious as to what brought you to doing what you do now. Totally. Yeah. So um, I've been doing private chef work for several years. We lived in um, Portland for about five years, Portland, Oregon. And then we moved to Chicago in 2019 um, at the very beginning of 2019. And then as soon as we moved here, I was trying to figure out what my, how my business was really going to um, kind of take off or morph as I got into Chicago. When I was in Portland, a lot of my food centered around like event type work. Um, I had done a couple weddings. I, you know, had done um, larger gatherings and I knew whatever it was, I wanted it to be a little bit more intimate. Um, and then um, I also just love working with kids. I've worked in youth development since college, um, and I got connected with a kind of local community center, and they were doing a summer camp, and I remember talking to the CEO and being like, hey, if you guys need help, let me know, and she was like, I have $100 a week if you can teach a cooking class, and there was no stove. There was, it was very primitive. We had a toaster oven, and I would bring in a blender and all my own knives and like you know, all our own supplies. I think I fundraised on my Instagram to get them aprons and safety knives and things like that. Um, and so it went from being this just like kind of volunteer role over the summer to me realizing, you know what, like, I love food education. So anytime I cook for adults or groups of people, I think that story is really important in um, in communicating like why these ingredients and why this specific dish and how does it connect to the people that are there and um, what are you experiencing in your mouth like as I present the food I'm like okay you might think this have this image about this food 
but let's talk about the textures that are all here and the balance of the flavors so that you can kind of individually feel all these different pops of what's happening. Um, and I realized that I think a lot of times when we talk about to kids about food, we just kind of dumb it down a little bit. Um, and there's this misconception that kids develop taste buds when, you know, like as they get older, kind of like, you know, we, we think, oh, they become, you know, more susceptible to tasting like bitterness or acidity or saltiness or, and the reality is that when we're born as babies, we have all our taste buds already. And it's just a matter of getting, um, kind of used to different foods and exposed to their flavors so that we recognize them in our brains as a flavor that is good. And so I, um, I just started cooking with them a little bit more. We started writing tons of grants and about a year in, we got a two year grant um, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> and so we went virtual for a year and then started in person again in the last year. Um, but just really kind of allowing them to experience adult food, adult plates. People ask me what I cook with kids. I cook real food with them um, and I let them be proud of their work and I let them say they don't like things and um, and we just move on we don't make a big deal about it we give them choices so if we're making a specific dish we'll have more than one vegetable or fruit component and I'll say you don't have to have everything but you can choose one and 90% of the times if they've made it they're choosing more than one um, because they're really proud of the work that they've done. Um, and we talk about like how to make it texturally appealing to them. Cause I think textures tend to be really hard for kids. Um, and talk about the specific like nutrient density of different foods. And we also don't villainize foods. I'm like, listen, if I'm having a bad day, I want French fries. Um, and that's my body being smart and saying French fries make you feel good. And that's an okay, that's a healthy moment that you're having in your body. Just as much as if I were like, I'm going to have a smoothie, but then I'm going to be unsatisfied by the smoothie. So I'm going to have a smoothie and French fries afterwards, you know? So um, it's just kind of allowing them to explore foods, to feel really empowered, to teach them great um, chopping skills um, so that they can become helpful members of their households. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've loved it. It shows so much of their personality to like let them plate their food how they like to see it. And it teaches you so much about how they experience texture and flavor and whether they like the juices to all mix together or they have to have them separately and stuff. It gives them a lot of autonomy. And I love that. That's amazing. I think back to when I was taught about food in middle school. Like I remember the food pyramid and I remember how we had like there were labels like bad foods or even like as I got older, cheat day foods and like mm -hmm. everything was like, I, I realized now in my adulthood that I was conditioned to be afraid of certain yes. foods and it is so dangerous for mm -hmm. that mindset to continue into adulthood as I'm realizing now. Um, and so it's really like with me having kids now and being able to listen to them and not shame them mm -hmm. around them, maybe not liking something or not wanting to eat a certain food mm -hmm. um, has been huge in my own healing with foods, especially cultural foods. So I, I'm wondering like what, prompted you to start this business in in the first place mm -hmm. um so the specific side of like food education I think was born out of my own curiosity and my own journey with food I think the same things that you're talking about I experienced right like we hear about rice and beans and like I remember we used to go to this church and they there was like a hurricane in Haiti and they were like we're gonna do a fast with rice and beans for the people of Haiti and I'm like one like how does this help them like, how does it help patients that you're eating rice and beans? And two, you're eating rice and beans like they're a poverty food and you're literally just dumping them out of a can. No wonder you don't like rice and beans. Like, I'm like, there might be Haitians who are poor, but like, I guarantee you their beans are not coming out of a can and they have flavor. Like, because, and I was like, I grew up eating rice and beans and I would have never thought that they were a poverty food until, you know, 
larger culture <laughs> kind of shapes that U.S. based culture shapes that and says like, oh, this food is bad. But then, you know, you hit like the mid 2010s and wellness, um, basically like white wellness um, influencers are saying like, oh, you have to go plant-based. And in order to go plant-based, I eat legumes, which is beans. It's beans. They're eating, they're eating rice and they're eating beans and they're eating blandly. And, and now they're trying to rebrand them into being like health foods, but they're somehow not healthy when, when we make them. Right. Um, and so I had to kind of unpack my own experience of like, okay, like, I used to go to the corner of the cafeteria to open up my container of beans because if I opened them at my lunch table, as much as I loved all my friends, they'd be like, oh, that smells so bad, you know? And um, realizing that there's like power in the story of our foods. So, and in the history of different ingredients. So like I started reading a ton about corn. Um, my, my family, I'm from Guatemala. And in Guatemala, the Maya culture, the creation story is called um, people of corn um, and gente de maíz. They're, you know, we're the grandma goddess basically ends up shaping people out of corn because that's what we survive off of. Um, so I start digging deep into that, into the flavors and the specific ingredients that are important to our cultura. So like tomatoes, tomatoes originate in the Americas, beans originate in the Americas, squash originates in the Americas, corn. And I start learning about the history and the anthropology behind it. And it becomes kind of like this spiritual thing for me. And I'm like, okay, I'm connecting with food this way. My clients, when I cook for them, are connecting with food in a meaningful way whenever there's story attached to it. And it's what would happen if we kind of interrupt the cycle of like, diet culture and shame around cultural foods for kids early on and teach them to feel really empowered by the story behind their foods and um, allow them to have that kind of spiritual connection with it too. So a lot of my students are Black, so all of a sudden I'm taking a ton of courses by, you know, authors like Michael Twitty, who is a Black food historian. Um, an anthropologist and I'm learning okay why is okra so important why does it almost like this holy food right within the black community and how can I just really become a student um, of the different cultures that my students come from so that I can help kind of bridge the gap between like what their taste buds are and the anthropological and historical reasons why that's a comfort food and why that's important um, for them to feel safe carrying that into the next generation right um so just really trying to interrupt like shame spirals around food good bad narratives around food um and and get like empower them with the information that they need to to understand why they feel connected to something that's amazing what is the age group of kids that you typically work with I tell people I teach kids from ages three to 80. Um, 80 gets harder because <laughs> they're really stuck in their ways. But um, typically within my classes, I, um, I teach two subsets of students from ages um, seven to like 11. And that program is called Chiquitos in the Kitchen. And then I teach students from like 12 to high school and that's called Juntos at the Table. So anywhere from early grade school up into high school. That is like a fundamental age, I think, when you are, well, I, I guess I think back to when I was learning about food and learning about my body, that was such a fundamental age. Mm -hmm. And so that's great that you are having that influence, especially in that age group. Yeah. And there's a lot like we talk about things like, I mean, that we've gone from the food pyramid and now in schools they're doing things like my plate, which is like basically compartmentalizes the plate into like, this is how much should be protein and this is how much should be carbs and this is how much should be vegetables. And so we talk about our cultural dishes and I'm like, okay, if you're making beans in Latin America, you're making a sofrito, depending on whether you're making beans in the Caribbean, in South America, in Central America, in Mexico, at the very minimum, there is garlic and there's onion, right? And so then we talk about, okay, these count as vegetables, right? 
So like we, uh, we don't typically tend to eat our vegetables um, as like a side dish. It's usually incorporated into whatever we're making. The sofrito has the tomato, it has the onion, it has the pepper, has the cilantro, you know, and that counts. So how do we redraw my plate to represent that our foods are not bad, right? They just don't look the way that the U.S. government decides that a healthy plate should look. Um, so that they can kind of circumvent those like things that they're hearing in school and say, okay, let me interrupt the, this image and this narrative and actually like acknowledge that our foods are, are good, right? They're not bad. And, um, and that I don't have to feel shame around them. Um, but it is a lot of work. I, I'm still unpacking a lot of the same kind of food cycles. And I remember, you know, in our 20s, Whole30 was this like big thing that everybody was doing. We did it a couple times. And I think the third time I did it, I was like, I never want to live without rice, beans and tortillas like ever again, get this colonizer diet out of my life forever. I finished it out of principle because I was like, listen, I finished what I start. But like, I was like, literally never again, do I want to live without tortillas? Never again. Um, and it's still this like constant work, even though I teach it all day long to my students, I still have to interrupt my own cycles of like, it's literally okay if I finish my meal and I'm like, I'm gonna go make a tortillita to like stop up all this juice. And I'm not gonna feel guilty about it. I'm just gonna enjoy it. Um, but yeah. That's awesome. So I know your your business name is Heart of Celebration. I'd love to to hear more about where that name is rooted in. Yeah. So when I first started, I actually like my work wasn't really necessarily rooted around food. Um, so when I first started, I did a lot of like event planning and things like that in Portland. I love planning and hosting a good party. I love a theme. Um, I love to make specific decorations or for like costumes and things like that. So it was more targeted towards that. And this kind of like deep rooted belief, my family was like, like they celebrate, they started celebrating my half birthday when I was two and a half. And I've celebrated every year since then. I'm about to celebrate my 30 and a half birthday next month. And it really became this thing, like, it was this huge cultural difference between my husband and I when we first got married, because I was like, excuse you, I need you to celebrate my birthday all month long. And then we're doing a half birthday in October. Like, this is, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And so it was a lot more rooted in event-based work that was, like, based on um, celebrating well, not just like aesthetically, but like in a space that was like really rooted in like, okay, why do you want to have people over at your house, right? Because you want them to feel welcome. Um, and how can you do that through, you know, your decor and your food choices, not things being like over the top to where people feel like they can never invite you over their house to, um, but in a way that like identifies, okay, if somebody has food allergies, um, how can we make sure that they can come and they can make a plate of food and they can not feel like they have to bring their own specific snacks because you remember them. Um, and then that's just how people kind of learned to identify with me. And in Portland, it morphed into food work like a year and a half in when I realized that like, that's really what people were showing up to, for, right? Was, um, was recipes and food and, um, so by then it had just kind of stuck and um, yeah, that's, that's how we got there. I love that. It's like how you described it. Like it's, it's so very cultural because mm -hmm. the way we view food is like poured out of love. Mm -hmm. Like we want other people to feel loved and when they come over, like taken care of, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an amazing shift that I see happening and that you have done in your business, shifting from the feelings of guilt and shame that we might have around food to those feelings of feeling seen mm -hmm. and loved mm -hmm. as who you are. And I think that is so needed in the U.S. because you don't see it often unless like you're 
around family or other like Latina people that get it as well. Yes. And that was something that was really interesting. You know, Portland, Oregon is, it's a lot of things. Having lived in Chicago now for three years, I'm like, it's really not that diverse. Like Portland, there was, I was the only one in a lot of spaces in Portland. Right. And food is incredibly beautiful in Oregon. Like everything grows really fresh and seasonal. And that's an element that I've taken into my cooking. But a lot of times it can feel really like um, distant from story, like pretty for the sake of it. So like if I'm, I grow my own edible flowers, if I'm using edible flowers, there's a reason why they're in the food, right? They're not just there to be beautiful, but they're there to elevate the flavor. And I remember being the only person in a lot of like food blogger spaces or in like food influencer spaces and in Portland and being like, this feels really like stuffy. Like, why are we here? Are people really connecting? Are they like, are they making food from this space of like connectedness to their being? Is it just work? And it's an interesting balance to find, right? Because as my business has morphed and as I've leaned more into my own cultural identity, it becomes this balance of like, okay, who am I making these foods for? Am I making, am I teaching somebody to make tortillas so that they can just add it to their repertoire? Or am I helping somebody connect to who they are and who they come from? And like figuring out like, how do I help people cook in their kitchens in a very connected way without giving too much of myself away without doing it just for capitalism and to make money, without doing it just for people's consumption, for like a baseless consumption that doesn't connect to the work behind what I do and why I do it. And so I veered a little bit more towards doing things in like Spanglish and Spanish um, so that it becomes accessible to the target demographic that I want to be cooking food and to feeling to feel connected to food. Like it's not that people outside of our cultures can enjoy them and can connect to them in some kind of way, but it's like, it's different, right? It's different to make something that you watch your mom and your abuela make for years and years and years, and you're too embarrassed to ask them for the recipe, right? Which I get a ton of people like that. They're like, oh my gosh, thank you for teaching me how to make black beans. Like I've seen, so, like I've seen my abuelita make it so many times and I'm just like so ashamed that I don't know how to make them yet and I don't know how to ask her. Um, and I'm like, thanks for making the beans, but like, go ask your abuelita because we make different beans and you like your, whatever she makes, you need to learn for the next generation. Um, it, it's just like a different connection than to somebody who's never had to open their beans in the corner of the cafeteria before coming back to the lunch table, you know? Um, so it's, it's a lot of like weird intersections of making sure that I'm showing up as a full person and offering things that help people feel more comfortable and more confident in the kitchen, but also not just for like white consumption to recreate because it's just added to their repertoire. It's a tricky balance. And I'm, I'm still kind of learning how to do that. Yeah, I can definitely understand that, that tricky balance. Um, And it will probably take a while for people to understand that mm-hmm. that aren't like people of the global majority. Um, so I think it is, it is hard. It is tricky. I mean, mm-hmm. I have been trying to educate about Mexican culture for five plus years now. Mm-hmm. And it's still like it is a very delicate dance because especially when your you culture want... is so generous yes you it it's very hard because like i am willing to share everything like mm-hmm. but also i also understand that like i could be taken advantage of and it has right. happened and then i feel awful about the situation Mm -hmm. you don't want to be at somebody else's cultural resource so that then when they go to a dinner party they they can just like spew off everything that they've learned from you 
without crediting back to your specific work and why they have access to that kind of information. And then it's tricky on the internet and on social media too, because people are so used to receiving free content all the time that like something that I've come against is people like asking me for a lot of like, oh, can you teach me how to make this recipe? And I'm like, they're like, teach me how to make the males. And I'm like, this is a day long process more, like it's over 24 hours if we're making our own masa. And like, so you're asking me to, I'm like, my hourly rate is $70 an hour. If you want to pay me that for 24 hours of work, let's do it like right now. Um, but like finding a balance of saying like, I am not your like Wikipedia page that you grab information for so you can sound good in front of other people. Um, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to not become a cultural resource more than just like for clout. Um, Cause I do have a lot of people who do follow who are not Latine and who um, engage meaningfully with my work, right? Um, and then there's people who just like kind of want to take um, and take and remake um, and repackage within their bodies. And it's just, it's tricky. It leads to a lot of dicey DM situations. And, you know, like, I'm just kind of used to at this point being like, thank you, you know, whenever people ask for work and they're not realizing that they're asking for free work to just kind of redirect that a little bit and say, hey, listen, like I'm a new mom. I have a five month old. I do private chef work and I also educate for my students and I'm also a wife and I'm also, you know, like, and I'm also a mentor and I'm at capacity for unpaid work. But if you would like to pay me, here's how you can pay me. And I'm happy to walk through this with you. Um, and if that makes you uncomfortable, then like, that's totally okay. That's your prerogative. But this is how I'm choosing to engage as like a person who needs margins so that I can be a good teacher and be a good mom and be a good wife and be a good partner and be a good mentor and still have space left over. Right. Yes. I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think sometimes as, um, millennials, we were taught to just give generously and if you're not if you're going to be like oh well this is my hourly rate then you're not being mm-hmm. a good person mm-hmm. or you're not being mm-hmm. nice or you're being mean or you um i've heard it said to me te crees mucho yes and, and i'm like like even as a photographer like i've been asked to do like sessions and i say okay this is my my rate mm-hmm. and it's like oh i didn't i thought we were going to you know barter do this, yeah. do this for fun um mm-hmm. and so it's been really hard and a mindset shift that i've had to make over the past few years and that i see a lot more people talking about making it more normalized to say like, no, like my expertise is worth something. And And I've worked for it. Yeah. Like it wasn't handed to me. Some of it was cultural and some of it had, you know, I did inherit, but like you weren't sitting there reading the 10 books from the library, learning about food anthropology. And so if you'd like to learn about this, I'm happy to educate you for a fee, you know, um, it, it, I think there's also like this hustle culture that as millennials and I think a lot of times of first generation kids and children of immigrants, both my parents are immigrants. There was such this like narrative. My, I remember my dad always telling me, he was like, you're small, you're brown, you're a woman. You have to work 10 times harder than everybody else to get what you need. And so I felt like I always had to be the loudest in the room. And like, I always had to say yes. And I always had to be available. And I always had to have all my ducks in a row and all my information like cross-checked and references ready, you know, um, to overextend myself. And it wasn't until I kind of like burnt out a little bit in like 2016, 2017. Oh, who knows what was happening in the world at that time that made all of us kind of lose it. But um, that I kind of hit this wall and I'm like, I can't say yes to everything. I can't say yes to everything and I can't be everything for everyone um 
because then there's nothing left of me, you know, and I have to value my time and I have to value my rest, right, over like profit. Um, That's another tricky balance of like, you have to charge what you're worth and you also have to take time off. (laughs) Like, you can't just work, work, work all the time. Um, Or like, I can't, I'm naturally an introvert and I need time to just like process and be alone and have big thoughts without having to talk about them with people because otherwise I get really grumpy. I don't function well. And so it's, I feel like we're coming out into like a less, less of a hustle culture and more into a like, what does work-life balance look like? What, you know, what does rest look like for us? Um, how is that accessible to our communities in like, not just taking a bubble bath, right? But like doing something that's truly restorative for your body and for your mind and for your being. Um, And it's hard to escape when you've kind of, it's kind of been ingrained in you that you have to work hard all the time. And when that's what you've seen culturally and generationally displayed for you. Yeah. So anyone listening who needed a sign (laughs) that it's okay to take some rest, let this be the sign that it is okay to create boundaries Mm -hmm. and to honor your work and your expertise. Mm -hmm. And to say no and take naps, like turn your phone off. Yes. Close. I Right now, like, you know, I have a five-month-old and I was at the doctor and the doctor was like, I know everybody tells you this, but you need to sleep when the baby sleeps. Like, your body is still recovering. Like, it takes your body a whole year to recover, even if you think you feel better, right? Like, there's still things that are being knit back together within your body. And he was like, even if you can't fall asleep, just close the curtains, turn your, uh, like, turn your phone off. And just close your eyes. Your body is still at rest in those times. And try to just clear your mind of everything you think you have to be doing. Because the work of rest is really important to your being able to show up and down the road. Um, and I was like, okay, say less. <laughs> yes, that is really good advice. From a male white doctor, let me tell you. <laughs> I was surprised too, but. Yeah. Um has there been anyone that has been influential in your life, whether it's like your life as a um, entrepreneur, as a food expert, as a mom, as a wife? Oh man, so many. Um, I think I, I, like I said earlier, I started taking classes from um, Michael Twitty a couple of years ago. He's such a great food historian and it just kind of opened this door for me of like, um, I think story had always been really important to me in the far off way of sometimes we say things like our ancestors did things like this, but I'm like, what did our ancestors specifically do and why did they do it that way? And um I think it kind yeah, like I said, it kind of opened a door for me to look at food more critically, more academically, I think, um, for my own story making and story keeping, um, but also for my students. Um, and then, uh, I mean, my abuelita always, like, um, my abuelita would just, was just kind of like the kind of person that was always um, going to kick you out of the kitchen and the foods, the place of food she was going to give you were so overflowing. And, you know, I would look at her, I was tiny growing up and I was like, I can't eat that. And she's like, Siéntate un ratito, mamita. you'll get hungry again in a little bit. And, and so it's like, you know, she would literally hold me off to shut the table for like four hours at a time. Um, because the plates of food were so huge, but I think a lot of the foods that center me the most are the foods that I watched her make over and over again. And I, I'm really thankful that she kicked me out of the kitchen because I could just watch her, right? Like if I'm making pepian, I remember my abuelita's hands kind of wet from washing the tusa or from washing the tomatoes. And then she'd scatter, you know, the pepita and the honjoli on the on the comal with her hands still wet and you'd hear the sizzle. And I have these visual memories of how she just moved around the kitchen, making these intense cultural dishes, just like unbothered, 
right? Like there's no recipe anywhere. There's no, there's just like this knowledge in her body passed on to her from her mom and her mom's mom. And um, I think when I am at my best in the kitchen, that's how I feel. I feel centered. I feel um, connected um, to being like, I think a lot of times in food, we think we have to be the most innovative or make food in a new way that nobody's ever made it before. And I'm like, the reality is that there's so many people that have lived before us that we're not ever making anything new. We're just not. And if we abandon that and instead go back to like honor, you know, what has been passed on and carried on um, culturally and generationally for us, um, there's just this deep, meaningful connection to food that happens in that space. So I like, I have one of her aprons that I wear when I'm cooking specific dishes. Um, and if I try to embody my abuelita when I'm cooking, I know that people are going to be fed. They're going to take food home and that they're going to feel loved. Um, so always, always that. Um, and I think motherhood, I'm just still really figuring it out. Like it took us a long time, um, to be parents. Our kid came six years after we were dreaming of him. And, um, it's just a little bit of like, of, of everything and everyone who has ever mothered me, whether it was my mom or my BS um, or teachers throughout the year um, and just allowing my kid to have his own personality and kind of show us who he is and what he needs from the world to be a good human. Um, yeah, that one, still figuring it all out. I think in motherhood, we'll be figuring it out. Forever. <laughs> Yes. Um, Going back to your childhood and the story you told with your abuelita, is there a favorite food or drink that you remember having as a kid? And is it the same for you now? Um, I, yeah. So with her, it was like making chuchitos, um, which are like Guatemalan tamales that are put in the corn husk which is just what would be called tamales in, in what we call it in Mexico and Guatemala, we have the bananas that are the um, tamales that are wrapped in the banana leaves and then chuchitos are the kind of smaller ones. Um, and you make, in Guatemala, you call it a recado. In Mexico, it would be called a mole. Um, and it's just kind of this long kind of drawn out process. It's all with your hands. I remember we would make it around Christmas or Thanksgiving, and then all my tias would be around, and each of us would have a specific job of either putting the masa on, or putting in the meat, or putting in the sauce, or wrapping and tying them up, um, and our abuelita only trusted us with the wrapping part, and even barely with that, right, like, because she's like, I could do this so much faster if you weren't here, um, but that is definitely one of those foods, but then there's also this, like, comfort food that I have that I always tell my husband, I'm like, I don't think anybody else has this craving. My Abuelita grew up um, incredibly poor, and I think abundance of food was just such a like gift to her that we had access to so much food all the time that she was a maximalist when it came to carbs. Um, and so she would serve you a plate with like spaghetti, black beans, bread, mashed potatoes, like just like all these different carbs, just because she had access to them. And I always tell my husband, I'm like, I don't think anybody else in the world has this craving, but sometimes nothing hits like spaghetti and black beans, like specifically blended black beans, because that like she would always put those two foods specifically next to each other. So I take the spaghetti and twist around my fork and kind of dip it into the black beans. And I'm like, I don't think anybody else ate like this, but that just is one of those foods that just hits for me because that's how she would serve it. That's awesome. Do you still make it today? Yes, if I'm having like a bad day or whatever, like those are foods that I know, like I always tell my students, our bodies are intelligent and they're like, that's why I try to never shame them when they're like, oh, if I'm feeling bad, I want a bag of Takis. I'm like, eat the Takis. Your body is telling you that you feel better when you eat this thing, right? Even if it's not like health-wise, mental health-wise, the memories attached to food help us ground and center ourselves. Um, I'm like, and so when you're eating a bag of Takis, if you don't know why you're upset, sit there as you eat your Takis and be like, what triggered this? 
Why am I feeling this way? What is my bot? Why is my body trying to calm down and deescalate right now and connect with? Um, and that's that's one of those foods for me: the spaghetti and the black beans. That is a really good mental health grounding practice. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that or like even give permission to have a bag of takis. Yeah, I'm totally like, and I think, I think again, it goes back to like the shame that we've kind of absorbed culturally around what our bodies look like and what's good and what's bad. Um, But our bodies are intelligent. Memory is the strongest connection to taste. So usually I tell my students, you need to try something at least seven times before you make up your mind whether you like it or not. Because a lot of times our first reaction when we try a new food, we think it's our body saying we don't like something when it's really saying, I don't recognize this. If it can't attach it to a specific food, then it's like we're naturally kind of afraid and think about our ancestors trying new foods for the first time. They didn't know whether they were going to get sick, whether they were going to be okay, or whether it was going to be a food that was poisonous. It's like a totally biologically normal thing to be afraid of new foods. Um, But you need to keep building the connections with them. Um, And then the same thing, like if there is a food that makes you feel better, try to think of the first time that you had that food. There's usually a connection to a group of people, to a specific event that happened, right? Whether it was you were sick and somebody made you a specific dish or somebody brought you something, um, there's a memory connection that your brain makes as to why it kind of calms you down. Um, eating is one of the best things we can do to be embodied, to like to be within our bodies and actively take care of ourselves and to connect with our beings. Um, and if we can make those mental connections of like, okay, I'm craving this. So that means that my body's out of equilibrium for what, like what reason, what's going on and how can I really be gentle with myself and try to figure out why, what's leading me here. Um, and also just like enjoy this moment that my body's giving me to like come back down. You're making me like really think, and I love it. Uh, I think that's really great advice. I usually ask like, what is advice that you would pass down to the next generation? But I think like that is great wisdom that, that is going to, like the more we can accept what you just said and that that concept, the the better we will better relationship we will have with food and be able to pass that down. So I'll uh, shift the question a little bit, but what would you like to pass down as far as like food or even just encouragement uh, to your son? Um, I hope that my son feels really comfortable saying, I don't like this. And I, you know, and that's okay. Um, And talking about food in a way that is not just binary, um, but that he has like a rich vocabulary and being able to say, you know what, I don't really enjoy bitter flavors. And I think this is why this is not something that I enjoy. Um, And equally being able to say, this is a comfort food for me. And I don't need to explain it to anybody else but my body, right? Like I want him to just feel really safe in how his body works and what it likes. Um, And hopefully to be really adventurous with foods. You know, we're starting food introduction soon. And in my mind, I'm always saying like right now, I'm like, it's just exploring. It's just exploring taste and texture and everything is new for him. And his brain is making new connections about all these flavors at the same time. And if food can be a space of pleasure, of connection, um, where like guilt is divorced from the whole experience of food. And it's about making other people feel comfortable, about laughing around the table, about um, enjoying time with one another um, and sharing like information and wisdom, um, then I'll be really happy with it. Like. Um, I, I hope that he just has a relationship with food that just, it's, it's not binary. That's full of just like 
comfort, like putting on your favorite pair of sweatpants when you get home from like an event where you were like all dressed up and you just like come home and you're like, ah, now I'm my real self. You know, like I want that to be his experience with food um, and not my plate or a pyramid or um, what people bring in their lunch boxes. I want it to be exploratory and um, and also a space for him to connect with people from different cultures. Mm. And how about as parents, like, is there any advice that you can give parents who are in this process of trying to reverse maybe the way of thinking that they've been conditioned to think because of education? I would say pay a lot of attention to how you talk about food. Um, one of the rules that I have in my classroom, I don't have a lot of them, but we don't use words like gross or disgusting to, to talk about food. And the example I always give them is like, that's how I felt people felt about my beans and beans are so important to me. And I try to find a food that's like relevant to them culturally. And I'm like, it feels so gross when somebody like belittles something that's so important to you, like a cultural dish that you grew up eating all the time, right? And so we don't use, like, I, I think we've gotten really comfortable with being like, oh, that was so gross. Oh, that was so disgusting. Oh, that's so weird. Oh, that smells so bad. Um, Which might be our honest first reactions, but we are unknowingly giving kids access to only that as the information that they have around food, right? So I'm like, we're going to expand our vocabularies a lot when we talk about food. If something feels foreign to you when you taste it, can you identify whether it's taste-wise or textural, right? So we talk about that a lot when it comes to mushrooms. I'll have them cook them soft and I'll have them cook them crunchy. And I'm like, okay, taste them crunchy and tell me what you taste. And it's totally different than when they taste them soft, because when they taste them soft, they're like, oh, it's so spongy. I feel like I'm eating a finger, right? And I'm like, that's a really great way to describe eating soft mushrooms, right? It's you're physically saying what you're experiencing versus just writing it off as bad, right? So pay attention to the way that you talk about food, because the way that you talk about food is the way that they will talk about food. Even if that's just saying, oh, I shouldn't eat this cake because I'm going to get fat. Or, oh, you know, I really, I'm being so bad today. I'm really cheating on my diet, right? It kind of makes these connections in their brains that like, there are some foods that are only okay in a context and they're, and then you feel guilt associated with them, right? And so then they're going to birthday parties and they're like, well, I really shouldn't have a piece of cake. Um, but then I eat one and I'm going to eat another one and I'm going to eat another one, you know, like, when we just kind of interrupt our own cycles of how we interact with food, we can really lay a foundation for them. And then I would also tell them to uh, like, let your kids in the kitchen more. They're really capable. Um, they're teaching experiences. I do like knife safety 101 with my students. And without a doubt, every session we'll still have a cut. And instead of being like, oh my goodness, it's such a big thing, it's so scary. I'm like, you know what? I have cuts and burns all over my arms and my fingers. This is what happens in the kitchen, right? So like what led to this? Were we distracted and we weren't using good form or um, were we doing too much? Like, and then how do we care for this wound? You know, how do we make sure that we, you know, may, you know, if you're bleeding, how do we take it away? If we need to throw some food out because some blood touched it, how do we make this kind of a learning experience without blowing it out of proportion so that they never want to be in the kitchen again, right? So just like normalize having them in there, not all the time because you don't always have the time to sit there with them and like monitor everything they're chopping and everything that they're doing. But if there's a day that you have the mental capacity and the space to really sit there and be like, I'm going to teach you how to make ramen noodles the way your abuelita would make it without the seasoning packet and we would add tomatoes and cilantro and lime juice and like if you have the time to do things like that it can be so um impactful for them to experience the kitchen as a place of yes versus no versus stay out i'll make your plate or um you know like of, of just like guilting them into doing the dishes instead of incorporating them along the way so that they feel like 
man, that was a lot of work. And my mom just came home from working a full day and she's so tired. So I'm going to help with the dishes because I know that took a lot of work. Um, and I know that that's easier said than done. So that's why I say, you know, when you have the mental kind of space and capacity to involve them, but kids are so much more capable than we think they are. And they're absorbing so much than we think they are. Um, and if we're mindful about our relationship with food, it can help theirs. Uh, that's such great advice. And I'm so appreciative of everything that you just shared. I feel like I could talk to you for like hours I know. and hours. I, I wish we could. <laughs> I know. I know, but I'm so thankful for your time. Why don't you share where people can follow you, connect with you, reach out to you, yes. work with you? Absolutely. So you can find me most often um, on Instagram at Heart of Celebration. And then my website is called the same thing, www.heartofcelebration.com. I have not like added recipes to my website in a while, but I do always tell people that there's a great library, like the bulk of the foods that I cook at least once a week are on the website. So it's a great resource um, for previous non-pregnant, non-newborn um, me that had the time to be putting a lot of food on there. Um, but those are the two easiest ways to follow along. And then the community center that I work with on the west side of Chicago is called Gap Community Center. They're always a great organization to give to. Um, they work in and within the community. So they're not coming outside of the community and doing work, but they're really taking people that are already there who are already working to help bridge gaps between food equity, food education, um, and a lot of other really great projects. Mm, that's awesome. Well, I am so appreciative of you and what you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Karina. All right. We will talk soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? Our chat inspired me so much to rethink and be intentional about how I think about the foods that I love so much. And I hope it did the same for you too. Okay, amigos, thank you so much for listening. There'll be a new episode every Tuesday. So after you listen, feel free to take a screenshot, post on Instagram, and tag at Elevating La Cultura, or send me a DM. You can also comment on this YouTube video if you're watching online. I always like to hear from people and how they resonate with the stories that I share. So leave a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get more ears listening to these stories and we can continue elevating La Cultura. All right, enjoy the rest of your day, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening. Y nos vemos next week. Adios.